Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you, Lord Father, for this very precious moment you have given us when we once again gather at your feet, Lord. Yes, Father God, we know time and again you have spoken to us and you continue to minister unto us, Lord. This day also we offer ourselves as we sit at your feet. And we pray, Lord, that even as you speak, we shall be prepared to change our ways. We shall be prepared to listen to what you have to say, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are so concerned over every one of us, Lord, that you choose to continue to speak to us. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take a song. And even as we take that song, uh, I want you not to just sing that song as a song, but I also want you to recognize the words, what they mean. Because towards the end of the message, we're going to refer back to that song. Uh, We will not take the song a second time, but we will just refer back to it. So let's take the song. The song is a song that we all know for the Lord is marching on. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. We shall read a couple of verses. Matthew 14, verses 26 and 27. Matthew 14, 26 and 27. 
And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Let us also turn to Mark chapter 5. And we'll read verses 15 to 17. Mark chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. Now, in both these passages, we see that someone was afraid, either the disciples or the people of that region. To the disciples, Jesus had one answer, and he said, it is I, do not be afraid. To the people of the land, he didn't say that. You see, and the thought that comes straight there is this. We just heard when Pastor Ayo was leading our prayer. And when we read from Romans 8 verse 1, we said that we prayed that all our past sins, all our mistakes have been nailed on that cross. And there is nothing that the accuser can accuse us with today. If there is a reason for us to be afraid, it is because we have done something wrong. If I have not done anything wrong, if you have not done anything wrong, what are you scared about? You have nothing to be scared about. And we just heard and we prayed and we acknowledged and we said it, we vocalized it. We said, there is nothing to be scared because everything that we have done, Jesus has nailed on that cross. And now Jesus here is telling the disciples, do not be afraid. But he didn't use those words to the people. When they pleaded with him to get out of there, when they said, we are scared, you are too powerful for us, please leave this place. He went. What do we understand from that? The words, do not be afraid, fear not, are meant for those who know the Lord. If you know the Lord and if you have committed your life to the Lord and if He is your Lord and your Savior and your Master, He just repeats what we should already know. He says, do not be afraid because I am there with you. But to the others, there is still a clause that needs to be done. But we shall come back to it later. Now from Genesis to Revelation, the words, fear not, are mentioned 75 times. To this, if you add phrases such as, do not be afraid, be courageous, be of good cheer, and similar other phrases, you will find that the total number of such phrases in the Bible comes up to 366. One per day. Accounts for the leap year also. So from the beginning of time, Till the end, God has been repeatedly reminding each one of us that we have nothing to fear 
we have nothing to fear if we only put our trust in him and in him alone. And yet, time and again, we hear of so many Christians, including born-again believers, who use the words, I am afraid. I am scared. I am terrified. I am downcast. I am disheartened. Do we really know what we are talking about? Or do we just mention these words as, you know, a lot of things that we often, you know, just trips off our tongues. But we do say this, and we do hear of a lot of people who say that. I am scared. I am afraid. And yet God has told us, fear not. Now the devil is a very clever guy. And he has decided to use fear as a weapon. And it's the devil who puts these thoughts into us, that you need to be scared of some things. And so that works in, in us. And we finally succumb to that temptation and then we start looking around and we are scared of the shadows that are around us. And then we start saying, I am scared, I am afraid, I am fearful. But what is the reality of fear? And that's what we are going to be focusing on today. The, the title of today's message simply is this, Who do we fear? Who do we fear? And we will take a number of passages to go through this particular title to see how we are going to work it out. And the first passage that we have is Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Remember, the title of the message is, Who do we fear? And the first passage we are looking at is Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. And it says this, and Rahab said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. You see, so the point that I'm trying to make here is, it's not you and I who have got to exhibit fear. When the people see us, they need to exhibit fear. Because what we see here, Rahab saying is that when we heard of what the Lord has done for you and how the Lord is using you and how the Lord is moving in your lives, our hearts melted and we are faint-hearted and whatever courage we had is just gone away. We are scared of you. It's not you and me who are scared of the world outside. Though sometimes I wonder whether that is the actual reality in most of our lives. And if you go on in chapter 2 to verse 22 and, sorry, 23 and 24, 
you read the report that the spies gave back to Joshua. They reported everything that had happened. But their clinching argument was in verse 24. What they said in verse 24 is this. Truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands. And indeed, all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. That's what we need to recognize in ourselves today. We need to recognize that the Lord has delivered everything into our hands. And it is the others who are faint-hearted because of us. Not because of anything that me, that I as an individual or you as an individual has or does, but because of the God who is in us. 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 says, He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. We quote that verse so often. Let's live it. You see, is this the only time this happened? Is this the only passage we have like this? No, not at all. Let's move on to Exodus. Chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 12. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses. And the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. Again we see a scenario where the people of the land became afraid of the people of God. The Pharaoh himself was scared of their growing might and he wanted to do something about it. His plan was to simply oppress them more and more and yet that plan backfired badly. You see, if you go to chapter 3 of Exodus and read through that chapter, we find that the cry of the children of Israel reaches God because that's what God tells Moses. The cry of my children in Israel has come to me. And so he decides that he's going to send in Moses to get the people out. Now, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 10, you'll see that Pharaoh was afraid of one thing, and that one thing was this. He was afraid that the Israelites would go out of the land. But when God moved, what did he do? His command to Moses, to, to Pharaoh, simply was, let my people go. Whatever Pharaoh was afraid of, that's what came to pass. Pharaoh was afraid to let the people go, and God said, let my people go. And that took place. You see, so, the God who was with the Israelites in that land of Egypt, knew the suffering that they were going through, knew the oppression that they were going through. And he knew that the rulers, the pharaohs, the administrators 
were getting more and more worried about these people. They were getting scared of these people. And God said, I will take that opportunity. I will use that advantage and now move my children out of this place. Today I have a question for you. Are you being afflicted in your work spot? Are you being oppressed by your sponsor or boss or head of department, whoever it is? That is simply a pharaohic trait that you are experiencing at the hand of these people. Don't be surprised at all. Centuries back, Pharaoh did it. Now the same thing continues. It's just a pharaohic trait. People are scared of you. In reality, people are scared of you. Not because of who you are, but because of the God you serve. They see that there is something in you that is unique and different. And the only way they know how to react to that difference is by oppressing you. That's what Pharaoh did. The only thing he could do, he said, put taskmasters on them, oppress them. More and more. Did he use his brains to think of how he could use the Israelites? He didn't. And that is the same situation that many of us face. Are you being denied your promotion or your increment or your rights? Like the Israelites, all we need to do is cry out to the Lord. And as he hears you, he will restore to you everything that has been taken away from you. Let me tell you the process of converting a dull, shapeless lump of yellow metal called gold into that fashionable and exquisitely beautiful ornaments that many of you wear. That lusterless lump of metal has to go through fire before the goldsmith can carve it into something beautiful. And as it goes through the fire, the goldsmith has to watch over it very carefully. He's got to watch it absolutely focused. At a particular point of time, he withdraws that heated gold from the fire and molds it into your beautiful earrings or beautiful uh, finger rings or bracelets or chains or whatever. In the same way, Whatever heat you are facing right now, God is carefully watching over you. At the right time, when he sees something that he's looking for, he will take you out of that fire. And what is that something he's looking for? Let's go back to the goldsmith. What is that point at which the goldsmith takes the heated gold out of the fire? When he sees his own image... Reflecting back out of the shiny gold that's been in the fire, that's when he takes it out. Because he now knows this lusterless lump of gold is ready to shine as a beautiful ornament. Same way, when you are in the fire, God is just waiting to see when he can see his image in each and every one of us. And as he sees his image in us, he says, this is the time to take this person out of the fire. Because greater things await you when you come out. You are simply being refined through fire. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said in, in Hebrews 13 verse 5. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we just need to hold on to that. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So why do we ever think that we are alone? We are not alone. Everybody else may 
departs from us. But the Lord Jesus Christ is right there because that's his word and we know that Jesus Christ is not a liar. I shall never leave you nor forsake you. Now as you are purified through this fire, you will become pure and you will shine. And that's what God is looking for. Let's also turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Chapter 6. And we'll read verses 15 and 16. Nehemiah 6. Chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul, in 52 days. And it happened, when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was done by our God. Now Nehemiah led the Israelites to build a wall around the city in just 52 days. Many of us, or any of us who have, been, who have tried building anything, will know that putting bricks and stones together to build a wall is not an easy task. To build a wall around a city is an absolutely difficult task. And that is what Nehemiah and the Israelites did at that point of time. The wall was built not just in 52 days, but it was built in an environment of utter opposition. The environment was not at all conducive. There were all kinds of things which were done. Just go ahead to a few chapters back. Go from chapter 3 and see what were all the oppression that Nehemiah and the people faced. They had to stand with one hand on their armory, ready to fight, and yet build the wall at the same time. There were all kinds of false accusations which were made against them. There were cases which were put against them. And yet they stood and they built the wall. They did not give up at that point of time. And so, when the people of the land saw that the wall was completed, they were disheartened because they knew that this task was completed not by the strength of the Israelites standing there, but because of the God standing behind the Israelites. The KJV describes the attitude of the people of the land as downcast. The NKJV talks about it as disheartened. The NIV describes them as afraid. And the NLT describes them as frightened and humiliated. Please remember that this was not the people of God who were disheartened or frightened. It was the people of the land. And the reason they were frightened was simply because they realized that the one true living God was with the Israelites. And today if we say that we are the people of God, it simply translates that the all-powerful, the all-able God is with us. So what are we worried about? Are you being opposed As you serve in God's vineyard, many of you are serving in different uh, ministries. And maybe you are doing it on your own. You, You talk to people outside. Are you being opposed? 
Are you being opposed just because you have chosen to listen to God and to obey Him and to do what He has asked you to do? I don't know what kinds of opposition you are facing, but there is one thing I know. And that is this. You will complete your God-given task in Jesus' name. People will see God standing with you and know that you are truly a child of the living God. Now, if you were to read the whole of Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6, you will understand that Nehemiah had to use particular wisdom to counter the different forms of opposition that came against building the wall. And if you go through those chapters, you will realize that the wisdom he had to use was not human intellect. It could not be done by his own thinking. It could not be done by the advice that he got from a few people around him. He had to depend on God. And remember, from the time he went up to the king and said that he was going to build the wall, he depended on God for every situation. He depended on God for understanding and wisdom. In his book, Wisdom Keys, Mike Murdoch makes this statement. Every problem in your life is simply the door to a wisdom solution. Every problem in your life is simply a door to a wisdom solution. Now, what is a wisdom solution? A wisdom solution is a solution that you cannot solve with your brain. It is not a solution that your friends give you. It is not a solution that you find in books of philosophy or any other book. It is not a solution that you find on the internet, however much you search. A wisdom solution is a solution that comes from God. Today, when we are faced with opposition or stiff pressures at our offices, our homes or wherever, what we need is wisdom solution sometimes referred to as a divine solution. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Proverbs 9 verse 10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's the difference? King Solomon in his wisdom says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And a few chapters later he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's the difference? Knowledge is a collection of facts and knowing the answers to problems. Wisdom is the application of this knowledge. But the key to both these verses is not in the fact of knowing what is knowledge or what is wisdom, but the first part which is, The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, so for us to start gaining some form of knowledge and applying that knowledge as some form of wisdom, it really starts with the fear of the Lord. If we don't have that, I really don't know what to call ourselves. But what I know is we have neither knowledge nor wisdom. 
You see, the fear of the Lord, when we say the fear of the Lord, this is not a terrifying kind of fear. It's not a negative fear. It is an acknowledgement that our God is Lord and Savior and Master of our lives. And that He alone has all authority and all control in our lives. So when I say that it is right to stand in fear of the Lord, it is a positive reflection of fear. It is not a negative connotation of fear. The negative connotation of fear is what we often say, I am scared, I am terrified, I am petrified, I am frustrated, I am downcast. That's a negative connotation. But when we say we are standing in fear of the Lord, we are actually acknowledging that we have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Master, our Savior, who is there to guide us, to lead us, to make every decision for us so that we know that our future is victorious. There is no failure that's going to come your way. Jeremiah 33.3 says this, Call to me and I will answer you. And the second part is very interesting. And show you great and mighty things which you do not know. There are a lot of things that we do not know. And if we need to come anywhere close to knowing a small part of what's there in the creation that God has made, the only way is call on the Lord. No other means. I know that some of us may be planning to get the, uh, the latest edition of uh, Britannia Encyclopedia because they are closing down. Yeah, they are closing down their uh, printed version. The digital version is going to continue. Uh, and I'm really looking on the net every day because usually when they close down printed versions, they give a good discount. Okay. But believe me, those 33 or 34 volumes of uh, that encyclopedia series will mean nothing. It will be only a collection of words and letters and pictures. Because for me to acquire knowledge... And wisdom, it starts with the fear of the Lord. And that doesn't come from Britannica or Americana or anything else. Right? Let me tell you of two substances that are produced from the carbon atoms. Now, all of you know what carbon atoms are. It's a little bit of chemistry. But there are two substances that we know of. Carbon, when it is placed under low pressure and a little heat, produces charcoal in a short span of time. So charcoal, which we love to use in our barbecues, okay, comes from pressure being applied on carbon atoms. That same carbon atom, when it is placed under extremely high pressure for a much longer period of time, produces diamonds. So diamonds and charcoal both come from the same source. The difference is how much pressure are they facing. And today, you have to ask yourself, do you want to be a piece of charcoal? Or would you like to be a crystal of diamond? What you are going to become simply depends on the amount of pressure you are going to face and the time duration for that pressure. 
Will you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18? And the passage that we're looking at is from verse 20 to verse 36 or 39. Yeah, up to 39. But I'm not going to read the whole thing. The story is a story well known to all of us. It's this uh, story of Elijah uh, calling on God and the fire descending from heaven. It was a challenge between uh, God, uh, Elijah as the prophet of God and uh, the, the hundreds of prophets of Baal. Uh, and they were jumping about from morning to noon and from noon to evening, uh, hoping for the fire to come down, but nothing came down. And then uh, uh, Elijah, of course, poured water a couple of times on the, uh, on the slaughtered cow. And then he turned to the Lord, and in verse 36, this is what he says. He says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Uh, 37. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that these people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. You see, and this is a statement they are making now when the question was actually asked in verse 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. And so it took them the whole day before they finally fell prostrate on their faces and said, the Lord, He is God. But the thing about this passage is that the people were the people of God. These were not pagans. If you go back and read that chapter, you will see that the Israelites now had an evil ruler, a guy called Ahab, who was now ruling over them. And he had turned them away from the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And instead, he had brought in all kinds of uh, idol worship. And the people were following that. So this group of people, right now that we're talking about, were not the pagans of the land, but rather, they were the Israelites. And so that really hits us, because this is the difference that we have here. It concerns the nation of Israel in the Bible. But when we translate that for us, it concerns you and me. We are not talking about the people of the world. We are talking about ourselves. Why is this passage so important for us today? Simply because it is not about others fearing us or our God. It is about us forsaking our God for the idols of others. See, that's what the people did. It was not about others fearing their God. The others had nothing to fear because the people of the land were not showing the power or the authority that God had placed in them. Instead, the people of the land were now following the idols. 
And so that's a question we need to ask ourselves. This passage is not about others fearing us or God or our God, but rather it is about us forsaking our God and taking after the idols of others. Now, I know a lot of you can say that, no, 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 we have no idols. Uh, we do not worship any idol. We have only the one true living God in front of us. Uh, there, there are no idols. In fact, we come from a background where we might have worshipped idols and we have forsaken everything. Uh, how can you ever say such a thing? But the point is, now idols doesn't just have to be those figurines that you keep in front of you. It could be a lot of other things. It could be things that uh, are capturing our imagination. They could be things that, you know, that captivate us so much that we are so enamored about that now those things have become a little more important to us than the God we serve. And so the God we serve has taken second place. But I'm going to, I'm going to address these issues uh, as we go along. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 to 9, we don't have to go into it, we were were referred to that, uh, in fact, over the last two weeks. We read of a war in heaven, and how the devil was thrown out, and how he lost his citizenship in heaven. Okay, I'm going to link this to uh, the chapter and the the passage in 1 Kings. So in Revelation 12, 7 to 9, we read of this war that took place in heaven, and how the devil tried to usurp the position of God, but was thrown out. Right? And he lost his citizenship in heaven. And then from 1 Peter 5, chapter, verse 8, and in Job chapter 1, verse 7, if you read these two verses, you will understand that the devil, who has been thrown out of heaven, is now roaming back and forth on the surface of the earth, seeking whom he might devour. Right? Okay. Now keep that in mind. The devil's enmity with God is so great that the devil tries everything he can to try to make you renounce your heavenly citizenship. And he offers you a glorified earthly citizenship. You see, the devil tried what he could against God. Didn't succeed. So now he says, who do I catch then? Let me catch the people of God. I'm not worried about the people who don't know God. Let me catch the people of God. These are the people whose citizenship is in heaven. But let me offer them something else. So that they renounce their heavenly citizenship. The citizenship which I lost when I tried to usurp God's position. Let me make sure that these guys also lose that position. You see, so we need to remember that we are having a citizenship in heaven, and I want to address this a little bit as we go along. Now, why is it that people are prepared to renounce their primary national citizenship and embrace the citizenship of another nation? We see this all the time. We probably have friends, relatives uh, who, who do it. Now, I'm not saying this is wrong in the earthly sense of it, okay? but let me tell you something. Very often, it is because they think that the new nation has something to offer them that they don't already have. It might be peace, it might be prosperity, it might be freedom, it might be opportunities, it might be wealth, it might be possessions, it might be something else. 
And therefore, maybe you are unhappy with your current citizenship, and so you seem to think that the grass is greener on the other side, and so you are prepared to take the other citizenship. Okay? This is the same principle that the devil applies to us. He offers us idols that trap us, idols that entice us, idols that trap us and keep us on this earth. He gives us idols that will take our focus from our heavenly home and instead focus on an earthly home. Now this may be an idol of money. It may be an idol of fame. It may be an idol of success. It may be an idol of possessions. Or it may be some other such idol. As I said, it doesn't have to be a figurine that you keep in front of you and that you try to worship. An idol can be many other things. Paul talks of this in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 17 to 20. This is what he says. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. But what the devil tries to offer is a lot of things on the earth. Making us renounce our heavenly citizenship. And say, this looks better. This looks more glamorous. This looks more shiny. This looks more attractive. And so you fall for it. You see, and that is what happened in first Kings also. Ahab turned the minds and the hearts of all the people of God away from the one true living God. And he gave them idols of all kinds. And when Elijah came there and asked them, now you choose this day who you are going to serve. They really had no answer at that point of time. Till the challenge had to be gone through. And at the end of the challenge, there was only one answer. There was only one answer which could clearly come out. And that is, all the other gods were dead. All the other gods could do nothing. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Elijah was the one who gave the answer. And that's when the people fell back on their faces. And they said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is God. He is Lord. And maybe some of us need to go through that. We need to look and see what are the idols. Are we on the point of renouncing our citizenship in heaven? And are we looking at an earthly citizenship as a good alternative? If you are thinking about earthly citizenship as a good alternative, think again. Think again. And see 
whether it is really worth the cost that you are going to pay. There is a man of God named uh, Sadhu Sundar Selvaraj. He is a Hindu convert living in Chennai, Madras in India. Now he has made it his uh, calling to minister among Hindus. Now he comes from that background. Now one day he, he entered a hotel for lunch. And as he was having his meal, he noticed pictures of many Hindu gods adorning the walls. In the middle of them, he also saw a picture of Jesus Christ. A picture that is normally put up in many places. Okay. At that moment, God told him something. And that is this. God said, I can never be one among many gods. Go and tell this to the manager. I can never be one among many gods. Tell the manager that he's got to change. He's got to take out all those other gods. Nothing has got to be there. Otherwise, this business will not flourish. Well, uh, our, our friend was a little diffident about going and telling the manager, how do you go and tell somebody, take off all these things from your wall? You know, after all, his wall, not my wall. Okay, so how do I go and tell somebody? So anyway, so he, he walked across to the manager, paid the bill, and said, you know, you need to remove all these, uh, all these idols. Uh, now this man, you know, this Sadhu Sundar Selvaraj, he wears the orange dress, which is normally favored by the Hindu holy men. And the reason he wears that is because he feels that that gives him an approach uh, as he ministers to, to, to many Hindus. So the, so the guy at the counter thought that this was a Hindu holy man. And, uh, and he said, are you offended because there is, I put the other God also with our gods? Uh, then, uh, you know, the other God being Jesus Christ. Have you, are you offended that you know, the other God is also there with our gods? So this man had to say, now listen, I may be wearing this dress, but I'm a Christian. Okay. And I'm not offended. But I'm just telling you what God told me to tell you. And God told me to tell you that he will not be equated with any of these gods. So you need to take off all these gods. Otherwise your business is going to go down the drain. Saying that, he went out. And he said that when he came back that area some time later, he found that the business had totally collapsed. Because the manager obviously did not take heed to what this person said. And nothing happened with that business to succeed. And so the point that we must remember is this. Our God is an awe-inspiring God. He is an awesome God. And you know, if you, if you really look at the King James Version, in many places the word awesome is used to describe our God. Awesome is rarely used for anything else. But today, awesome is used for everything else. Yeah. Went for lunch the other day and somebody said, this is an awesome lunch. The new iPad is awesome. Okay. But I think we need to go back to saying that there are some words which really signify who our God is. And we talk about our God is an awe-inspiring God. Our God is an awesome God. And we need to keep these words for Him. And it's only appropriate that we should fear Him. 
Okay, as I said, this fear is not a negative fear. Rather, it is a reverential fear, an attitude that indicates our praise and our worship and our honor and our acknowledging His majesty and His power and His glory and His lordship. So we return to our question, who do we fear? Remember, that's what we started with, who do we fear? You and I are called to fear God. You and I are not called to fear man. Matthew 10 verse 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We are called to fear God. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So clearly we have verses. And you know, you can go right through the Bible to find many more verses which tells you that the fear of God is beneficial to us. It's a positive fear. It's a fear that you look forward to. Because it's a reverential fear. The fear of man and the fear of the devil or the fear of the unknown is an avoidable fear. It's a fear that needs to be thrown out. It doesn't have a place because it's going to snare, it's going to ensnare you, it's going to pull you down, and it's going to take you into a position where it's going to be difficult for you to get out of once again. In conclusion, let me just turn to, let us turn to Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. A few months back, standing at this very place, I gave you the formula for success. I'm not going to ask you what it is, but I'll tell you what it is. It is, do not be afraid, hold your peace, go forward. That, I said, was the formula for success. Today, I've given you no formula to step out of fear. Success has a formula. Breaking out of fear does not have a formula. It has something better. It has a statement of fact. You see, a formula requires that you test it out. Anybody who is in science will know that if you have a formula, and if you want to know whether that formula works or not, you need to test it out. Okay, so the formula for success needed testing. You needed to make sure that you were not afraid. You held your peace and you went forward. And then you would know whether you would be successful or not. But a statement of fact is something that has been proven time and time again. It has been tested by any number of people over the years. It doesn't need to be retested. It only needs to be applied. And that's the thing about getting out of fear. You don't need to test it out. It's been tested. God said it. All you need to do is apply it. And the fact simply is this. God said, fear not, for I am with you always. And so the message that I'm just leaving is this. If we are ever in a position where we say, I am scared, bite your tongue. You are not scared because there is a God in you 
who is above any other problem. Every other problem. There is no reason for you to say that you are scared. Tell the devil, he is scared. He needs to be scared. When we started, we sang a song. And I said, I will come back to it. The gist of that song simply was this. Life is a battle. I trust the Lord Jesus Christ to lead me through that battlefield. He is the captain. I fear no foe. And I am assured that victory is mine. That's the summary of that song. Brothers and sisters, shall we bow down in prayer? Do we really trust God? Can we truly say that we fear no man and our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone? Does your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven? Let us rise up to pray. Indeed, if God be for us, none can be against us. How many of us believe that? Our God is greater than all. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have given your life to Jesus Christ, let me tell you, you are standing on a rock. And that rock is higher than every wave. And so as you stand upon that rock of Jesus Christ, every threat of the enemy will be like a wave under it. Because you are higher than the wave. There is no wave that can be as high as the rock. And so from today, any situation that wants to threaten you, I want you to release this word of faith in this song. I'm standing on the rock. I'm standing on the rock. I'm standing on the rock. The rock that cannot fail. Are you standing on the rock? Are you standing on the rock? Are you standing on the rock? The rock that cannot fail. Father, we want to thank you because you took us out of the merry claim. And you placed our feet upon the rock. The Bible says we are placed far high. Above principalities and powers. Above every threat of the enemy. And Lord, you have commanded us, fear not. And Lord, here we are standing upon the rock. Every threat of the enemy from this day. Lord, we pray. It will bring a song of praise into our hearts. And as we praise you, we know that the enemy will be defeated. The enemy will be terrorized. You will set ambushment against the enemy. Oh Lord, we pray. Let the song of faith manifest in our lives, in every situation of threat from today, in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are praying, we want to stand, that your glory around us will attract the people into your kingdom. And so, Lord, the faith to stand and to sing, in the midst of the fiercest trials, grant to every one of us this afternoon, in the name of Jesus Christ. You have told us already. All the fires of the enemy, they are to bring forth gold, bring forth diamond in our lives. And Lord, that we may shine more for you. Lord, we pray you continue to strengthen each and every one of us. That we will live a life of glory that will bring honor to your holy name. 
Father, we thank you for your servant that you have used. More of your anointing and power bestow upon him. Blessed be your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's share the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with us now and forevermore. Amen. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Go in the power of the Lord.